This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. And now, from the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Mind Your Business with the Wharton Small Business Development Center. Knowledge, advice, and insight into starting, building, and managing a small business. Here is your host, Lauren Feldman. Welcome to Mind Your Business on Sirius XM's business radio powered by the Warden School. I'm your host, Lauren Feldman. I'm the senior editor of Entrepreneurship at Forbes. As usual today, we're not going to tell you how to run your business. The show is about ideas and strategies and conversations, and we want to have those conversations with you. If there's something you've been struggling with, something keeping you up at night, call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And as always, this is a safe space for business owners. If you're struggling with something, there's a very good chance someone else listening to the show is struggling with it too. In other words, there are no stupid questions. Back with us today to discuss those questions is one of our regular guests, Jay Goltz, founder and CEO of the Goltz Group. Jay owns the largest picture framing shop in the country, and he's got several other businesses, including a home furnishing store in Chicago. Uh, he's a manufacturer, a retailer, a distributor. He sells online, and most important, as he'll be the first to tell you, he's made every mistake you can make, and he doesn't mind talking about them. Welcome back to the show, Jay. Always great to be here. How are things in Chicago? Has it stopped snowing? I think summer has started, actually, today, yeah. Congratulations. Thanks. Um, so I want to give you a, a field report, Jay. You, uh, as some of our regular listeners may recall, uh, had a hand in the creation of uh, what's kind of become a, a, a small movement, the Small Giants movement. You uh, spoke to Bo Burlingham when he wrote his Small Giants book um, about 10 years ago uh, about businesses that, in his words, choose to be great instead of uh, necessarily big. And uh, I was an editor at Inc. Magazine at the time. We did a treatment from the book that focused largely on you. Uh, that was a cover story in Inc. Uh, about your experiences that led you to focus you know, more on running a great business than growing a huge one. Um, not all those experiences were happy, and you discussed those uh, at, at great length. You also uh, actually came up with the the term small giants that Bo uh, adopted for, for the title. So I want to tell you, we had the annual Small Giants Summit in Detroit uh, last week where what we did for the third time now, we picked the 25 Forbes Small Giants, 25 businesses that we think are arguably the best small businesses we could find uh, in America this year. And it was a really cool event. We announced the winners at a Ford, uh, uh, refurbished Ford factory where they made Model Ts. Uh, just a beautiful venue. We read out the list. Uh, most of the companies on the list were there in attendance. There were screams of joy when we read their names. Uh, most of them did not know that they had made the list, although a few of them managed to get an early copy of the magazine and figured it out. Um, but it was pretty impressive, and I thought you'd be interested since you had a hand in, uh, in the very beginning. Well, I'll, I'll tell you the interesting part is when, you know, Bo found me because I was doing a speech somewhere, and he happened to be in the audience, and like, I never thought about it much. And when you say decided to be great instead of big or grow, that really wasn't on my mind. I always tried to grow the company, 
but it wasn't going to be at the expense of doing things right and feeling good about what I was doing. So it wasn't really until Bo wrote the book that I even thought about the balancing act of that and that it's okay to decide you're not going to necessarily be the biggest, you know, if, if, if that isn't necessarily your goal. So he, he helped to really, no pun intended, frame the whole conversation <laughs> about business because at that point... You only get one of those, Jay. was grow, grow, grow. Um, you're right. I think you put your finger on something interesting because I think that's why uh, this you know, m- minor movement of small giants has kind of taken off because like you, uh, y- a lot of the- these businesses that, uh, that we meet at the events and that we put on the list, I think had never really thought about it before, but, uh, but Bo crystallized something. And, and I think a lot of business owners uh, read the book or heard about the concept and concluded, hey, I didn't realize there were other people who thought this way. And, it, and it's not that they don't want to grow, like you said. They do want to grow, but they, but they don't want to grow at all costs. Um, you know, they, maybe they went into this to, to be their own boss, and they really do want to be their own boss, which means not having investors to report to, and, and obviously that's you. Well, here's the funny part of it is that because of this, um, we're a little bit of rebels now because, oh, you don't want to raise – raising money is a critical piece of it, which, again, I never thought about that either. I have no interest in doing that. The funny part of it is so the people who are – You had no use, interest in doing that because – I don't want to have to answer to anybody. Right. I want to do my thing, and I don't want to get the call from somebody. And, you know, one of the small giants things, he actually had someone that was speaking talking about – his adventure and he was going big and I, I literally was sitting there thinking about yeah I don't think that big and then by the end of the speech he's telling us that investors are calling him screaming at him and I thought yeah I don't I don't think small I don't think big I think medium that's when I <laughs> thought of that phrase that I actually think medium like I want to grow it but I'm not going to take investor capital and to do it and and what's interesting from that, there's a little bit of a backlash that the people who think that like you're a loser if you're not going public or something, they invented the phrase lifestyle business, and now they just slack everybody. Oh, you're a lifestyle business. And I think, really, 110 employees, millions of dollars, you know – they, they they have to like they have to like you have to dish you kind of like oh well, you're a lifestyle business well there is such a thing as a lifestyle business but it's certainly not somebody with 110 employees so um, there's somewhere in between a lifestyle business where you make a living and you feel good about what you do and you've got two three four or five employees and someone who's got a medium business that's doing more business than, it's it's know. funny how that term lifestyle business has become kind of a, a derisive term um, absolutely it, you know it's <laughs> if, if somebody figures out a way to make a living and be able to enjoy life that's um that's a pretty positive thing but to turn it into oh you're not really you're somehow not really serious about what you do that well our friend cliff called me that if you recall well you had that debate right here on the show right and that's why it's funny like there are certainly people that you could probably you know you own a landscaping company and you've got you know 12 employees and you make a really good living but i i'm I'm hardly i mean I, i own a fairly big business in relative terms to call me a lifestyle business offhand is really just um, just shows you how it, it was said in his debate to just go, oh, you're not one of the fast, whatever they call their fast-growing things. So it, it is funny how it's uh, taken on its own. Well, but before we get any angry calls from landscapers, let's, uh, I'm, I know you agree with this. You can run a landscaping business with 12 employees and, and be working your rear end off trying to, to make and it work. A really, really good living, and I do, that's certainly a and, great and, thing. And that's not, you know, not necessarily a, a lifestyle business by any means. What I, you know, 
know, in this day and age with technology the way it is, you know, a lot of people run one-person businesses, and that doesn't necessarily mean they're a lifestyle business either. But but maybe they choose to, you know, run it in such a way that it frees them up to do what they really love to do, whether it's to you know to play golf or to study or to travel. Uh, they manage to you know accommodate what's important to them, and you know, I don't see anything wrong with that. I think the fact that someone had to come up with that phrase just says it all. <laughs> like, where were they thinking? Like, what do I call that guy over there that's just not going – I mean, the fact that someone had to come up with that phrase well, I, is just kind of laughable. I think it's used derisively by people whose uh, lives are kind of out of balance. And Absolutely. <laughs> they, they, uh, they feel as though they have to demean other people who have somehow figured out a way to enjoy what they're doing. But I think we've killed uh, that uh, – beat that horse uh, enough. Let, let me tell you about a couple of companies that, that made the list this year. I think you'll find them interesting. One is an amazing company called Missouri Star, uh, which was founded by a family that uh, was kind of in distress. They had health uh, issues that uh, ran up bills. They actually went through bankruptcy. They'd been on food stamps and welfare in California. They picked up and moved to a small town in uh, Missouri, uh, literally a one-stop light town. And um, they started a quilting business, and it, it grew largely as a result of YouTube. There's a, a matriarch in this family um, named Jenny Doan who started doing uh, helpful YouTube videos that became kind of the place to go to get in- information about quilting. And, uh, you know, more than 10 years later, they have what they now refer to as the Disneyland of quilting in this tiny town in Missouri. They, it's a $40 million a year business. They now own restaurants and uh, other ancillary things. They've, Hotels. Oh, yeah, they've completely turned over the town. It's uh, just an amazing story of what they've accomplished. Yeah, I actually heard about it when I was at a seminar about, uh, you know, a, a technology seminar. They used them as one of the examples. That is, you know, it is an incredible story. Uh, here's another one. Um, we picked a, uh, a business called Amy's Ice Cream that's based in Austin, uh, started by a woman named Amy Simmons. Uh, with all these businesses that we pick, we try to find something that they do that's really smart that other businesses might learn from. And um, one of the things that Amy did was to figure out that she she had a built-in uh, challenge in that running an ice cream stand, she knew she was going to have tremendous turnover among her employees. There's there's just no getting around it. They hired a lot of college students. They're not going to stay and, and make a career out of scooping ice cream. And she kind of embraced that and decided that what would make the most sense for her was to try to teach these uh, employees as much as possible while they were there. She actually made it a goal to prepare them to, to be as transparent as possible about how she ran the business and possibly even prepare them to go out and run their own business if they chose to do that someday. Uh, there, there's no middle management. They alternate. Everybody's a pit boss at some point. Everybody gets some management responsibility. And one of the things she found is that uh, these people who, who go through that process end up being her best marketers, both in terms of sending customers there to, to eat the ice cream, but also in terms of sending uh, additional waves of employees. They go out of there talking about what a great place it is to work and encourage younger friends to go and uh, take their shot at at it. Um, something that, you know, obviously this isn't, wouldn't work for every business, but it's an interesting way of, of looking at how you hire. And I think something that a lot of people could learn from. 
Well, it also speaks to what I you know, say at the end of my speeches now, what I figured out about business is it's not about the income, it's about the outcome. And as I've gotten older, I've come to appreciate that I can really help a 22-year-old who's never had a job, who's never really been out there in the business world, that I get calls 10 years later thanking me for you know, the experience of working here, and I, it's not costing me anything. I'm happy to do it. And, and I, I think you – I won't say you have a responsibility. I would say you have an opportunity as an employee – is an employer when people come out of school to really be a good first job for them and to help them figure out how they, you know, how they can succeed and grow. And that's a good thing. I don't, I just think that's one of the psychic paybacks of being in business for yourself. There are certainly lots of downsides to owning your own business, but this is certainly one of the big upsides. So Jay, we have a, a caller on the line uh, who I'm about to introduce. Uh, but uh, to prepare for that, I just wanted to talk a little bit about why one of the reasons you adopted your uh, approach to running your business and became what you know, you know we now call a small giant is a uh, a difficult experience that you went through, which is relevant for our, our next caller. You at one point decided uh, when the internet was kind of a newish thing that you were going to try to put together a sort of a, a platform, a coalition of uh, frame shops around the country and uh, create a, kind of a marketing uh, platform that would allow people to find a great frame shop wherever they were. Uh, do I have that about right? Yeah, the piece of the puzzle is that at the point that I did it, you know, I was by far the largest framing place in the country in one location. I speak at all the trade shows. I mean, I'm the business editor of the magazine, so people know who I am. And I figured, well, I could Pied Piper people to the next level because, you know, I've got the business stuff down. And and as soon as I show them this marketing thing using this newfangled thing called the Internet, that we could drive business to the better frame shop. So it all made perfect sense. And um, But it didn't you know, work. We were going to pay like 100 bucks a month, and everybody would be a win-win for everybody. But it didn't work. And uh, I think, uh, as, as you've explained to me previously, for, for, for interesting reasons. And part of it was, that, you know, there's this natural tension between uh, art and commerce and passion and business. Um, sometimes people have all the passion, but they don't have the business sense. And it can be very difficult to, to, <laughs> to just run a business on passion, as many people have discovered. Tell us what went wrong. Um. I needed maybe 500. First of all, at the time, there were 25,000 frame shops in America. So I figured if I could get 500 of them to pay, I don't even remember what it was, 100 bucks a month or something, there'd be enough cash flow coming in. I could put some ad, ads into the to the big, called Shelter Magazines, the El Decors, the Metropolitan Home. I could put some ads in the magazines. And then this was really before search engine optimization was really you know, even it was really early on in the internet, so I wasn't even thinking about that. So, and I probably was a little early on it, but I still don't think it'll work for, I'll explain that in a second. So, you know, advertising the magazines, go on the internet, you're in Baltimore, you punch in Baltimore frame shops, you know, six frame shops come up, and everybody would win. And it made perfect sense to me. So I started advertising, I went to the trade show, I started signing up some people. And it was going a little slow, and I realized that it really takes some energy to sign people up for this. It's not that simple. And I got up to 100, 150 people. Meanwhile, I'm losing money because I've already put the ads in these magazines. And I always say there's a thin line between visionary and delusionary. I was way over in the delusionary side, <laughs> and my CFO 
who's still with me today, had just started a year before. He comes into my office every month and goes, Jay, you know, this thing's really losing a lot. No, 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 it's not a problem. I'm going to do this. I'm going to start getting some sales reps out there. Not a problem, not a problem. Well, I let it go for two, three years, and then the, uh, September 11th happened. That certainly didn't help any. And then I saw people started to drop out that, that had signed up. And I, I call them, and I said, Bob, you signed up a year ago at the trade show. You said you'll be in this for the rest of your life. What's going on? Well, we've got to cut expenses and blah, blah. I go, Bob, it's 100 bucks a month. I mean, if you get two, three customers a year and it's worth it. And I realized this is the lesson I learned. It absolutely was working for people. It absolutely makes sense. But just because it makes sense to me and it makes sense in the marketplace doesn't mean that the typical frame shop owner is going to get it. Because I've had people tell me, well, I'll, I'll be happy to pay if you send them in. The idea of spending 100 bucks a month and not having someone run in with an ad saying, here I am, I came in from your ad, they couldn't get past that. And um, I realized that the average picture frame store owner is not – uh, is really into the craft of framing, but doesn't necessarily have the business skills. And I had spent hundreds of thousands of dollars over the years in advertising, like because that's what businesses do. And like these people don't spend money in advertising, so for them to spend a hundred bucks a month and not have people running into their store every month, they didn't get it. And by the time I pulled the plug on it, I lost hundreds of thousands of dollars. And um, is my evolution? It made me realize that. Um, I'm delusional, and i got to be careful, and I should have pulled the plug on it much earlier, which is why whenever I hear that phrase, never give in, never, 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 I, I cringe because sometimes you should give in. Sometimes uh, the rest of that quote is never give in and nothing greater, small, large, or petty, never give in except in convictions of honor and good sense. That was Winston Churchill. Um, I have it right here. That's why I stuck it on my phone, so I remind myself. <laughs> there is, I, I sometimes you should quit. Yeah, sometimes I'll, it makes sense to quit. All right, so that was a long time ago. Um, let me introduce our uh, our uh, guest, Grace Cho, who is the founder of a platform that's certainly not the same as what you did, uh, but has, shares some similar characteristics. It's called Orange Genius. Uh, welcome to the show, Grace. Hello. Good afternoon. Uh, great to have you here. Uh why don't you tell us uh, tell us what your platform does? Your um, you, the goal, I believe, is to help artists who don't necessarily know how to run a business uh, figure out the business side. Do I have that That's right? That's right. That's right, Lauren. Thank you. It's great to talk to you again, NJ. Our um, genius is a platform. It's also a marketplace. It's also a career services center. There are a lot of different functions within it, but ultimately, in a, in a simple sort of one bullet point, we want to help uh, emerging artists and artists succeed, and they define what success is. So whether uh, it's setting up an online profile, uh, whether it's building uh, portfolios, or whether it is to sell or go after a fan base, it's, uh, you know, we, we don't it's not a light site. They have to come in and... Uh, what do you mean it's not a light them. site? It's not a light site in that, that you don't just upload a picture on Instagram or Facebook and try to get some fans that way. What we do is we have to, um, we have to figure out ways in which we uh, upload uh, pictures back 
resumes, et cetera, so that they can decide uh, what to show on a public basis. And then they can decide on top of that there are e-commerce elements as well. So give us an example. Um, how would someone who's interested in, in, in selling, you know, using the e-commerce function, how would somebody uh, sell their art through your platform? Uh, they could come in, uh, upload their work. Um, uh, meaning they- if they're a photographer, up- upload actual photographs or a different kind of artist, uh, oh, photographs yes. of whatever uh, they do? different kinds of visual artists. Uh, so we cater to uh, all types of visual artists, from painters to photographers to even sculptors, uh, mixed media, you know, a variety of different visual arts concentrations that, that we cater to. And once you come in, you build your resume. Uh, the resume is uh, a 3D uh, multimedia form of your background. So you're not just entering bullet points, but you can... Uh, attach images or portfolios of your work, so it becomes a very sort of multimedia experience. A visual resume is what uh, the artists really wanted to build. Otherwise, you get LinkedIn or some of these other tools that are just great for the financial services world, but for a designer or an artist, they're a visual uh, creature, so they want to show their uh, the images of the work that they've created. So we've actually built that. Second, uh, we have the ability to put in and work, uh, an artwork inventory. An artwork inventory is where you curate from your own works, upload, and create a catalog of all the details of each piece of work uh, in addition to um, indicating the contributors for each of the works, which is very, very unique and different from every other site. Uh, you upload information about the licensing, the uh, artist statement, the materials used, but all the people who helped you make that project happen. So that's your inventory. And once you have that, you go in and you choose from a number of different templates and you create your portfolios. The portfolios are very dynamic in that you can really, with just a few clicks, create one for one person or for hundreds of people. Some can be private, some can be public, depending on what you're trying to do. So you can create one for a job, but one for a gallery, et cetera, et cetera. So that flexibility is great. As you upload all of this stuff, you can determine which ones are going to be on sale. So you put in a price, and once you enter a price, it automatically goes into the marketplace. And what's exciting about the marketplace feature is it's online, but we also just released an app that's augmented reality-based, ARVR technology is associated with e-commerce. So you get a, uh, a very interesting experience in looking at the art, which is great. That sounds expensive. Obviously, you've uh, raised some money to uh, to build all this. Yes, and and it's up and running now. You, you, it's people up are and running now. Um, it's it's available on iTunes, and uh, we have uh, we have released it uh, on a careful basis, but it's going to go wide live as of next week. So we're very excited about it. You're listening to Mind Your Business. I'm speaking with Grace Cho, uh, founder of Orange Genius, a uh, platform that, as you just heard, people are using to sell artwork. And uh, Jay Goltz is still here. Uh, Jay, I'm curious. Um, th- obviously, this is v- very different uh, from what you did years ago. Uh, but there's certain similarities in the idea of trying to combine art and commerce. I'm wondering uh, what kind of thoughts you have. Well, uh, my question is because 
I mean, it, it is 18 years later since I was doing it, so the world's obviously changed, and there's lots of sites selling hard. I guess my question is, so, so I'm on the site, and I see you've got very nice, well done, looks good. So if someone goes and sees a piece of art, what, do they contact the artist directly and get it right from the artist? If somebody wants to buy art, is that how it works? Yes. And as a business model, how are you just are you getting the fee from them every month, and that's the entire expense to the artist, um, or do they have to give you a piece? I, of we have to actually have a free account. That's really great. So anybody who uh, wants to have a lot of the robots features can come on and join. But there's also an annual membership fee uh, that's only like $108. It's a monthly fee of about $9. So with that, you get a bunch of pro features that are that are unique to that particular. Um, to that particular uh, membership um, plan. Uh, when they sell, I'm so proud of this fact, because in the industry, uh, when you sell through other e-commerce sites, uh, the fees can be exorbitant, anywhere from 35 40%, all the way up to 80% in some cases of each of those sales. We were very price sensitive to the artist. One of the great reasons why we built this business was to make sure that we uh, flip that equation and make sure that the artist gets credit and the royalties from that sale. So uh, we take only a 10% fee of each sale uh, in addition to the, the payment transaction fees that are just extra, and we have no control over that. So net-net, uh, we're probably taking about 15 16%. The rest of that goes back to the artist, which is which is unheard of in this industry. Well, and, uh, the, there's no the, question for the artist that's a really good deal. My question yeah. would be as a business, is this a non-for-profit on purpose, or is it going to – I mean – How's that mask? How are you going to fund this whole thing? Only take because there's a reason why oh, those we, companies are taking forty, fifty percent. Right, uh, it's not a non-for-profit. I think what we have is the the value of having multiple revenue streams. And you hit on a really key point, Jay. So many of the other businesses have uh, what I call our one-trick ponies. They have only a single revenue source. So usually a single function app or a platform. So you go in to sell, or you get in to subscribe to a particular newsletter, or you go in to do a particular function. We are a platform, a platform that has multiple functions across the board. So we're able to generate revenues both from an individual artist member, but also from enterprises and organizations where we have uh, development projects with larger uh, schools and institutions as well. So there are a number of ways where we're uh, generating revenue. Uh, as a company. Grace, yeah. um, I know it's early. What what have you done so far, aside from talking to, to Jay and me, uh, to spread the word, <laughs> um, to let people know that this exists? Well, this radio program certainly helps. So thank you so much for inviting me. Um, Pleasure to have you. The mar- <laughs> yes. In terms of the marketing efforts, we've done all, all fronts. Social media is a robust. Uh, someone mentioned SEO, uh, search engine optimization is, a, is an incredible uh, strategy for us, and we've been working uh, hard on that. Uh, second of all, the third of all, we we have uh, been invited to a number of different conferences and talks and panels, and we've organized our own in the industry. So uh, we've uh, we've really done uh, a lot in that area, and nothing beats face to face in some cases. But most of all, I think the word of mouth has been so powerful for us as we work with great institutions such as Pratt or. Uh, creative Circle, which is which is the largest recruiting agency in the country for creatives. When we do these partnerships, what, what, uh, what, is that, that what exactly does that mean? What, what, how do you define a creative? 
uh, creative is anybody who is in the creative industry making something. So uh, currently we are focused on the visual arts industry, uh, but it's quickly bleeding into other forms of creativity, such as, uh, you know, um, fashion, architecture, uh, 3D modeling. And we really, I mean, that's a struggle. You had asked about struggles earlier. Um, it's constantly a struggle so for us to really sort of keep the scope uh, from creeping too hard too early. So we, we are always trying to figure out ways to make sure that we stay true to our current set of uh, markets that we serve and then make sure we do that well before we move on to the, to the adjacent markets. But a creative is somebody uh, who, who is in the creative business um, right now, we define it as the visual arts, but it could be a lot bigger if you actually ask the, the creative economy. So, so uh, in essence, you've created a community and resources and an infrastructure for people who are creative in what they do. They're in passion businesses, I might call it, but probably don't have the resources that someone who got into investment banking or mortgages or something like that. And... You provide, and there's different revenue streams that come from that, obviously, because there's a lot of needs being served there. That's right. And some of these services are a la carte, where we've uh, invited uh, important partners to come into the network, if you will, and provide services for the artist groups. Uh, in other cases, it's, uh, it's really about uh, us uh, vetting those organizations and making recommendations. So it's really about that business of art piece. Whether you've been through uh, an arts education for four years or whether you've been an artist out there for a while, that business side is really a challenge. And so the only resource that they've typically had is to go to Google or go to their friends and ask. So I thought that was really just an inefficient way for this market to operate. So we've done a really good job, I think, and we've got a long way to go, uh, of really centralizing a lot of those basic pain points and needs and questions and coming up with ways to help answer those questions or getting them to the right people so they can take care of that business. In most of these cases, we've built a lot of these tools organically within within the team. But if there's a faster, better, much more you know efficient way with a partner, we invite those partners into the network so that they can um, co-market with us. I can tell you as someone who is, you know, the name of my company is Artists Train Service. I've been dealing with artists for 40 years. As someone who has dealt with artists for 40 years and went to art school, it's really an indictment of art schools that these the, the, the kids graduate with an art degree and haven't had one class on how to make money making art with just that is basic right. overall oh. Call it what is marketing, define it, show them different options. Here's what an income statement looks like. If you make art, here's how you price it. It would be, It's just not that hard, but it just shows you the major difference between the – so who's running the art schools? Artists, you know, I guess. I mean, it's, it's just – it's just really unfortunate because one class could be game-changing for somebody who graduated from art school. And, and one of the women that works for me just told me yesterday she graduated, and the woman that made the speech at her graduation said, yeah, none of you are going to make any money in the art field probably, and uh, maybe 2% of you. And oh, I probably should stop talking now. She said she likes melting down on the stage at her graduation because she realized she probably shouldn't have said that. But it's 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 really a shame that in today's day and age they still from what i know most of the art schools from what i know are not doing any preliminary business stuff so it seems like you're filling a gap 
Grace, our listeners, I think, would be interested to know that you do, in fact, have on your resume both uh, art and business. Why don't you Why don't you tell us a little bit about that background? My background, yes, uh, it is uh, it is dual in nature. Uh, I have had twenty five years of business, but throughout that, uh, doing I what wanted to be an artist. Uh, financial services, uh, global financial services. I've worked in probably about 17 countries with GE Capital, uh, working in commercial and consumer finance. Uh, I've built businesses. Uh, I've worked in all types of weird industries, aviation, credit cards, commercial uh, equipment, winemaking industry, etc. cetera. Uh, those were, I mean, my original plan, of course, was to like do this financial services thing for about two years after college, and then I was going to go sell paintings on the beach somewhere. But it didn't really happen that way. I ended up staying. And I'm so glad I did because, uh, you know, having traveled the world and working in all these businesses, uh, I called myself an entrepreneur in, in many ways. I was an entrepreneur in a big company and helped build businesses from nothing to something. But that creative side really helped because, in every business that I entered, I was um, building a mosaic in my head, and essentially, of all the raw materials and pulling together pieces in different ways and actually creating businesses. So I figured out early in my career I have a knack for this, and uh, those skills are coming into play now, which are very interesting. But most importantly, as I worked all over the world, uh, it, I call it a one giant long arts education because wherever I was, you know, during the day I'd be working, but at night I'd be going to all the cultural and arts uh, groups in, in those countries. And it was just a, a wonderful foreign study program for 20 years. That sounds pretty um, great. Uh, it, was, it was great fun. Grace, uh, we're going to have to take a break and, and let you go okay. in a moment. But uh, just tell us quickly, what what what, what do you see is uh, the, the, the biggest challenge you're facing now? What, what, what are you worried about? I think that uh, the, the natural tension between art and technology has to be overcome. Uh, this, this industry is, uh, some are moving forward very fast, but some are not, and a great portion of them. And it, it's a disconnect. It's a, I, don't, I don't want to call it a generational gap, but it's a disconnect between uh, the new buying groups, the buyers who actually want to buy, and they are, they're consuming with technology, yet the creators have not embraced it as much. So you have this disconnect, and hopefully we can bridge that gap uh, in ways that other companies have not been able to. I have to tell you, just as as you, you said, these companies are taking exorbitant, you know, the, the percentages. I have to tell you, one of your adjustments over time might be that you'll see, you know, what maybe we need to take twenty percent because that's what we need to pay the bills, and it's still good for the artist. I mean, there is nothing irritates a gallery owner more than the artist coming, going, "What do you do? You put a hook on the wall and you hung my art up, and you want forty percent?" It's a little more complicated than that, like rent, employees, health insurance. So. There are costs to having overhead, and I, I wouldn't. You're not. You wouldn't be wrong at some point if you decided to say, you know what, I think we need to charge 23 percent or whatever. It would still be a great deal for the artist. It would be. It would be. But I think the beauty of the internet is that you wipe away a lot of those necessary costs. So it's just another way to distribute Maybe. your art and and discover that in a, in a way. And certainly, AR VR tools are making it really cool to, to experience art. And you put that, you know, you can have the glasses or not, but you're flying through and you're actually creating a deeper experience, believe it or not, which is sort of ironic because you, you're in there and you're looking at the art and you're studying it. And we're the only group to actually click that video 
to the platform so you can really learn about the artist. So it's, it's kind of a cool experience. Grace Cho from Orange Genius, uh, founder of Orange Genius. It's been great speaking with you. Uh, we'd love to have you back at some point to uh, hear oh, how it's going. You. Thank you so much for joining us today. Always a pleasure, Jay and Lauren. Thank you so much. Thanks. We'll be right back with uh, Jay Goltz. Our number here is 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. More with Jay in just a moment. You're listening to Mind Your Business. I'm Lauren Feldman, and this is Business Radio powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. You're listening to Mind Your Business with the Wharton Small Business Development Center. Here again is Lauren Feldman. Welcome back to Mind Your Business. I'm Lauren Feldman. I'm here with Jay Goltz, uh, founder of the Goltz Group. Uh, On Twitter, he's at JSmallBiz. If you have a question about your business, give us a call. Our number is 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Um, Jay, uh, along these lines, um, we were talking about small giants before, and uh, we talked about how you kind of learned a lesson from a difficult experience and changed your your thoughts uh, about how you run your business to thinking uh, less big and more medium. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, we, we've talked often on the show about how you decided to try to expand your home furnishings business into New York City uh, in the fall, I believe around September. Um, I gather it didn't go exactly uh, as you hoped it would. It was a pop-up store. You've decided to uh, to, to close the pop-up store. Tell, tell us a little bit about the experience. Well, I, I wouldn't. You know, I didn't know how it was going to go. All I knew was we have a ton of customers in New York. They love the you know the products we sell for Jason Home. You and know that because they were buying it online. Yeah, we right? have them. We're buying them online, and we've got a lot of designers from New York. I mean, it kind of speaks to the country. Most of our, when I say most, a large percentage of our online business is from California and New York. Um, that's where the design leaders are, probably, and we carry edgy, cool, interesting stuff. So we have a good following there. And I know Soho is the center of the world there, and I figured let's give it a shot because there was no way I was going to go sign a ten-year lease. It well, you did it in a, in a very uh, in a very smart, pragmatic way, as you explained in September when you were first doing this. Uh, although you know some of the most expensive uh, real estate in the world is is right there in uh, you know Soho. Uh, you managed to to come up with something that wasn't uh, incredibly pricey or a huge risk. Is that right? That's, that's because of my previous experiences of knowing that I'm delusional. I keep <laughs> myself in check because if it was 10 years ago, I might have signed the lease. You know, a 10-year lease. Torpedoes. It would have destroyed the company. I mean, these are, these are $10 million leases if you sign a 10-year lease. So, so I figured if I do a three-month pop-up, it's not really going to tell me anything. So I figured I'd give it nine months, get to the summer, and if it's working, great. And if not, I'll pack up and move back. And we got a lot of new customers out of it. We had a great response. We got tons of press. But it is a challenge to have a store in Soho with the rents, what they're at. And we just decided that, not a big surprise, that, you know, experiment over. I'm, and uh, and, we're, and we picked up a lot of new online customers. So what we learned about New York, which is very different than Chicago, they come into your store, they love it, and they go home and they order it because they don't have a car. 
didn't even occur to me. I mean, Chicago, people drive, most people. So we think we'll be able to retain much of the business just being online without paying the rents because and just for perspective, I know there's a lot of business people listening. The rents in New York and Soho, I'm in Lincoln Park. It's the second. I'm on Lincoln Park in Chicago. In Chicago. It's the second busiest shopping which I've been credited as starting, frankly. I, it was an abandoned factory district when I moved in 40 years ago. It is now the second busiest shopping district in the city of Chicago. And the rents in New York and Soho are about four times what they are here. Um, you buy a condo in New York, it's four times what it is here. The numbers are just dramatically more expensive there. And even though there's a lot of people there, you know, they got to find the store. Now, if I was a public company and I decided I'm going to stick it out for five years, would it work? Maybe, but I'm not a public company, and um, I just uh, didn't want to take that risk. So we, we found a lot of new customers. Like I said, we had a great response, um, and uh, we're having a closing the store sale this week, and we're selling a ton of stuff, hopefully a lot more by next week. Um, it's on Brooms. It's on Green Street, 138 Green Street, and... Um, you know, I gave the, the, the entrepreneur story here is I gave it my shot because I, I think you got to keep moving forward. I gave it the w- shot. Would I you do anything differently if you were starting over again? <laughs> Knowing what I know today, obviously, I, I, I maybe I wouldn't have done it, but I have to say we pulled it off. I had a staff there. The store looked great. We got tons of press. Um, we did it all right, and I feel very good about that. We pulled it off. We got the store open, and it worked. Um well, wait, wait, you get, you got to, when you say it worked, I mean, if, if it had really worked, you, you'd be staying, it keeping it open, right? We had lots of happy customers. The employees were doing a good job there, and I didn't have, have any grief. It worked as far as doing the numbers that it would have needed to do. No, but I didn't, you know, I wasn't sure if it was going to do that anyway. But, but we did get the store open, and it, and it, and it ran nicely. I, I needed to try it, is the point. And I knew going in, if I, if I, and I lost money at it, obviously, just because the rent's so high. I needed to try it, and what I've learned about business, you know, my son works with me. He's in charge of the Internet, and he he's not listening, so I'll say this. No matter what idea I come up with, it's a bad idea, and I once explained <laughs> to him, you know, um, he takes after his mother. Um, I, I come up with ten ideas, and um, six of them are nutty, and two are questionable. One, I don't know, and one works great. Now, I can afford to lose money on some of those because the one that works makes up for the other nine. If I said if he was in charge, he'd do none of them, and I wouldn't have a business. I mean, sometimes in business, you just got to take your shot, the calculated risk, and you'd see what happens. And I, I was smart enough and experienced enough. I had the money to lose. I knew that if it doesn't work, I'm going to lose some money. I had the money. It didn't, I didn't jeopardize the, the, the ship. I'm not going to bet the ranch. That's nutty. And I see people that do that, and they do go broke. I, I'm not going to bet the ship at this point. That would be, that would be, that would be reckless. That's beyond and, delusional. Yeah, it is. Right. That takes delusional and adds recklessness. And at least delusional, you believe your own story going into it knowing it might not work, but you're just going to bet on it, that's reckless. So I'm not reckless. I knew that there was a good chance that the math wouldn't work. And um, so I, I, and the other thing is this is, the entrepreneurs listening will totally appreciate this. And the government shares this with you. You know, it was a loss. I didn't pay taxes, you know, so it's a tax loss. Um, So whatever you lose, you know, it's not as quite as bad as it looks because at least you had a tax deduction from it not that you do things for that reason but i took a shot and i definitely listen in the long run 
I could very well make up the loss just because we picked up a lot of great customers. So um, I'm definitely not rational. I'm not counting on that. But I just decide. I used to hear that phrase, you know, grow or die, and I used to shrug at that. And there's something to that. I mean, I think you need to keep evolving. And the day that you stop evolving, I think you got a problem. And I'm not doing that. I'm continuing to try things and move along, not aggressively like I used to. I'm not trying to take over the world anymore. But the world doesn't stay the same, and it constantly evolves, and you'd better stay ahead of it because I have a long history. I watched my father's dime store, for those that don't know, know what it is. Google it if you don't. My father had a dime store. I watched it die over 20 years. My father-in-law had a clothes store. I watched that die over 20 years. Now, I don't know if there's something they could have done about that back in the you know the 80s, 90s, because the department stores were taking over the world. But you can't just stay doing the exact same thing you've done for years because the world has changed and the con- and the, ec- the economics have changed and the internet has changed things and rents have changed things. You need to constantly evolve to stay current because there's very few businesses out there that are the exact same way today as they were 20 years ago. And off the top of my head, I can't think of any. All right. Well, I want to ask you about one aspect of that, but I just want to remind our listeners that you're listening to Mind Your Business. I'm Lauren Felvin. My guest is Jay Goltz. If you have a question about your business, uh, if you're struggling with something, you're, uh, you have a chance to talk with somebody here who obviously is, uh, has been through uh, almost every situation you can imagine and is willing to talk about it. Please give us a call at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Uh, Jay, looking forward with the you know the balance between uh, selling online and bricks and mortar, and you, know, you hear an awful lot about the you know the retail apocalypse, and will there even be <laughs> stores left in the future? I, I'm uh, I'm curious if you feel you learned anything about that balance between web and retail. And I'm thinking about this in part because of what you said about how uh, you know you had the experience of people who would come in, look at something, see it, and then go home and order it online. Um, you know that sounds like a win, but um, but it didn't help keep the store open. Well, here here's a big word in businesses: attribution. That's a huge word. Attribution means where the sale come from, and attribution is a problem because people go on your website, they love it, and they call and order it on the phone. If people know what a phone is, the thing you're talking to, they call on the phone and they order it. Well, where's that being attributed to? It's not being attributed to the website. It's going into your store sales. Or they go into your store and they go back home. It's very hard to figure out exactly where the business is being generated from. And that's, you know, my new phrase is anyone who speaks in absolutes is always wrong. <laughs> I hear it every day. People say, well, no one wants to go into stores. That's just not true. No one uses the yellow pages. No, most people don't use the yellow pages, but some do. So, so I think it's people, possible no one uses the yellow pages, Jay. Very few. And, and the, the yellow page in Chicago, this sounds like a joke. It's not. It, I got it this year. It had on the front cover, it said, now in bigger print, which is just <laughs> funny because the people that are using it are about 97. Um, but, but the point is, the world, it's hard to figure out exactly where the business is coming from. There's no question the Internet's had a huge impact. 20%, 30%, but there's still plenty of people that want to go into a store and touch and feel the merchandise and walk out with it. So you just can't lock yourself into thinking that you've got it, that everybody's doing this or nobody's doing that, because that's just not true. Um, so I'm navigating, you got to have a strong website to support your retail, and I'm doing that. The problem is if you don't have um, public funds or venture capital, you're not going to have the state-of-the-art website because that's just, you know, it's, it's big money. They've got 
50 developers, you know, competing with companies that have 50 web developers, you know, working on their website every day. So that's the challenge in right. business. A lot of people days. think it's much less expensive to run a, uh, a website than it is to run a store, but that's... Well, right, and that's one of the fallacies. I've gone to the internet, you know, there's a big convention in Chicago, and there were three people on the stage, all working for big companies, talking about their internet presence, and I raised my hand and I said, can you tell me what you think your costs are as a percentage of sales to, to operate your website? And you would think I just asked them for the nuclear code on how to launch a submarine. They like were like deer in the headlights. And why? Because they work at these big companies. They have no idea. But when you talk to someone that knows, you'll find out that running a website probably is going to cost you 10% of sales. It costs a lot of money to maintain it and build it. and It's not like it's free. So the way another one of the absolutes is, oh, brick and water costs a lot. Well, it's not like the Internet's free. It's it might save you that might it saves you some labor because people aren't standing around doing nothing when you're slow it's it's there's some efficiencies to it but it's not it's not a case of well it costs you 15% to to run a brick and mortar store and it costs you nothing on the web that's not at all the case it's my guess is it's probably 10% on sales, and, and that's what I finally got out of people that knew and actually did the math on it. But no one talks about that. They just act as though bricks and mortars is this anchor and the web is free, and that's just that's laughable. It seems to me that the, um, the strategies I hear about that make the most sense are all, all involve finding some kind of balance. You know, clearly, if, if you have a, uh, a brick-and-mortar presence somewhere, you're, you're probably going to have more online sales in that area, too, because it's, it's a form of marketing. Um, and, and maybe it shouldn't matter where the sales are attributed. It's, you know, it, it's all sales. Um, you had it the- only matters because the attribution is important because you are putting funds towards something. So you have to decide, gee, should I hire another person to do social media? Because you're paying a salary. The question is, is it bringing business in? I mean, so it's, it is a little trickier. You kind of have to have some idea as to the cause and effect of where you're going to deploy your money. But, you know, you were talking about having a store in Soho. I mean, in Manhattan, that, that's, you know, um, that, that's retail Xanadu. Uh, that's, you know, that's a store that's uh, all about, um, you know, pr- presence and creating awareness. Uh, surely a lot more people know uh, of, the, you know, your store's existence as a result of what you did there. Surely. And like I said, I had some big designer events, and it's a normal story. Oh, my God, I love Jason. I mean, they they love Jason, you know, home, and, and that's all I ever hear, and that's why we did it. And so I think, listen, a few key designers could, could give us business over the next few years to make up for, you know, the, the rent we were paying. So, you know, jury's out. But, so is there a way to get the best of both worlds? Could you, Is there some other way to do something in New York City that wouldn't be as uh, expensive? Did, did anything occur to you? You probably could find a landlord that would do a straight percentage deal at this point. I think many of them are freaking out because I don't think there's enough customers to go around to fill all these doors. I could be wrong. I'm told that it's picking up there now. I think the rents got astronomical and they've come back down to some degree. Um, maybe, but um, – and listen, if you were to say, Jay – that was kind of stupid. You shouldn't have thought you could have made money. I wouldn't necessarily argue the problem. I wouldn't say that, Jay. You, you could tell me afterwards. Afterward. But, but I wouldn't argue with somebody if they said that was probably not realistic to think you were going to make. Here, here was the problem, though. Or that I had a store in the Hamptons for three months, and we made money. We opened. Whoosh! Tons of customers came in, bought stuff. We made money. 
that's the Hamptons. It's not the same in Soho. The rationale was, well, there's a lot more people living in Soho than in the Hamptons, except they're not all walking by my store. In the Hamptons, they were. So uh, it's tricky. And um, So you're going to do the Hamptons again? Next year, I could very well do the Hamptons, yes. It worked. Um, the problem in the Hamptons is trying to find help. Very challenging. Even during uh, in-season? Yeah, because the people going there are... Uh, that are going in season, like Barbara Streisand's not looking for a side job to work in my store for summer. It's <laughs> kind of hard to, and Sylvester Stallone wasn't interested either. I mean, we went through a long list. Nobody was really interested in working in the store. It's, think about it, who's in the Hamptons? I mean, I, and where are they going to live while they're working in your store? It's, it's, it's difficult. All right. But, well, back to reality here. We, we, we only have a couple minutes left. But one of the cliches you hear about retail is that people today, are, you know, if they're actually going to go into a store, they need something different. They want an experience. Um, did this change your thinking about that at all? No, because if we're good at anything, that's what we're good at. We, I have buyers that go all over the world and find cool and interesting stuff that if I owned 40 stores, I couldn't put in because you can't, either can't get enough of it or you know, you're know, you not sure it's going to sell here. We bring it in. If it sells, great. If it doesn't, we sell it on sale at the warehouse sale or we have a sale room now. So i got flexibility. We're really good at and I'm not exaggerating when I tell you, I meet people all the time and I tell them what I do for a living and I'll say, uh, this really doesn't thrill my framing people that we've been here for 40 years. I'll say, oh, I own artists' frame service. Oh, I think I've been by there, and I also own Jason Home. <gasps> oh, my God, I love Jason Home. It's my favorite store. I bring all my friends here when they come into And they just, like, they're like, like, okay. I mean, they love Jason Home because we have really cool and interesting products in the store, and it, it people like it. And we're very niche. We're, I, I don't, I'm not suggesting I could put a Jason Home in every city in the country. I couldn't. Um, we're, we're, there are people in this world who like cool and interesting things for their home, and they don't want to buy the same thing that everyone else has, and we're great at that. So, no, I didn't learn anything from that. It just validated one more time that, you know, we've, we've got nice stuff that people like, and we display it properly and interesting, and there's no planograms. I've got artsy people that work for me that put the thing together, and they like doing that, and, and it works. Just in case, it's Jason with a Y, J-A-Y-S-O-N. So, Jay people like the store. Um, once again, thank you very much for taking the time and for sharing your journey with us. Okay, always happy to do it. Give me a call anytime. I'm waiting for the call. Will Thanks. do. If you want to keep up with Jay, go to goldsgroup.com. You can also follow him on Twitter, at Jay Smallbiz. Unfortunately, we have run out of time, but we're here live every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific. My thanks to audio engineer Danielle Bruno and producer Michelle Stucker. If you want to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter, at L Feldman. Until next time, I'm Lauren Feldman, and this has been Mind Your Business on Business Radio, powered by the Warden School, Sirius XM 111. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 